I have a feeling that I am not going to be doing a Thanksgiving thing this year. Yeah, same. And I'm fine with that, honestly. Actually, we should we should totally do an episode on uh, family relations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should do a Thanksgiving special. Yeah. Oh, we totally should. <laughs> yeah. Because we've talked about Thanksgiving extensively just like when so we're talking. Much. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be playing Joni Mitchell's Clouds in the background. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> Alice's restaurant on repeat. Oh my god. Oh yeah. man. <laughs> I might have to mail you the Alice's restaurant movie. There's a movie? Yeah. I, we've definitely talked about this. No, before. man, I've never heard about that. Oh my god. I have to watch it every year. It's like it actually means a lot to me just sentimentally. Um What is it? Is so, it like the plot of the song in a movie or is it something that's it's it's the plot of the song with a lot of that like 1960s counterculture layered underneath it. Okay. So there's it's the plot of the song, but I'd actually call the song the B plot, the B story. Okay. And then like the 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 A story is two elders from the previous generation trying to kind of take the the draft generation under their wing and and protect them mm. by establishing this like communal life within this church that they buy. Mm. So um, yes, it's a tale of Thanksgiving and yes, it's a tale of the draft and yes, it's a tale of <laughs> everything that you've heard in the song every single year <laughs> on repeat on, <laughs> on public radio. But it's also just a beautiful story about like the, the clash between generations and the, parental instinct like the instinct to foster the younger generation as well but it kind of juxtaposes the hippie generation the vietnam generation with like the ideals and morals and assertions of what came before hmm. that's cool yeah i had no idea that existed i definitely watched that yeah i actually met somebody last year i want to say who had never heard the song in their life wow like they didn't know what it was well, that's absurd. Yeah, I don't know how that's even possible. <laughs> like, for a, the longest time, you just couldn't avoid it. I mean, now at least, like, a lot of the radio stations that used to play it are, are closed, so I could kind of see how you could skip it if you don't listen to the radio. But back when we were growing up, you know. No, I definitely told you this story, I think. Because I was saying that when I got, when I first started writing for a paper, one of my first stories was the folk festival in Lancaster. Mm. And so I was writing about that, and Arlo Guthrie was the headliner. Oh, that's cool. And I never ended up meeting him because I was shy, and I didn't understand the uh, power of the press pass. <laughs> but my editor was telling me, like, oh, you've never heard Alice's Restaurant? You, like, at least need to listen to that before you <laughs> <laughs> write, a, <laughs> write a piece on Arlo Guthrie and the yeah. Smoke Festival. So, yeah, when I was 21, I had never heard it, but... Now I've heard a lot of his stuff. Like, I would love to meet him. Yeah, I like him. And they do, uh, I think they were doing an open mic at the the actual church, the Alice's Restaurant Church. Which is now the Guthrie Center. Yeah, yeah that makes more sense now. But, <laughs> but I saw they, they host a mic there like once a week or once a month yeah. or something. I've always kind of wanted to go down there. I've actually never been inside, but I regularly take a pilgrimage. Oh, cool. Like, usually 
once a year or once every two years, I'll just drive to Great Barrington and just like stand there in awe of it. Yeah. <laughs> Does he live out there too? I think so. Uh. Did you know Bill Cosby lived out in Western Mass? I by did. The way? That's crazy. I just found that out last week. Yeah. I mean, it's negative now. It's more of a bummer than it would have been but years is ago. Is he still, is he in jail though? I think so. Okay. I honestly thought he had died until <laughs> that was what started the conversation about finding out that he lived in Western Mass. But uh, but yeah, I was blown away. I had no clue. Huh. Yeah, a lot of, I was going to say gems, but there's a lot of uh, things in Massachusetts. Yeah, Cosby's not a gem. He's a thing. <laughs> well, I don't know what hidden blank, you know, like <laughs> hidden gems. What's the opposite of a hidden gem? A blemish? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Speaking of catastrophes. Speaking of, okay. So, um, all right. <clears throat> Tonight's topic is a surprise topic because I was watching a video that uh, really struck me, had some had some real truth in it that I had never really thought of before. Um, and it goes without saying that since I'm surprising you with this, we don't have to continue this conversation if it makes you feel uncomfortable. Okay. But I think it's pretty standard to what we usually would be talking about anyway. It's not that far of a deviation even from like what we've been talking about with irrational versus rational thoughts. Um, so to preface this, I follow this guy, Science Mike, who is who was one of the co-hosts of the Litur Liturgist podcast. Okay. And he posted this sort of update video about what he's been learning in therapy. And he was talking about his tendency to catastrophize and make things seem much worse than they are so that there is a feeling of having weathered something, a feeling of accomplishment, a feeling of success for just conquering what's in your mind but not what is in your physical realm, you know? Yeah. So he was talking about that in terms of what makes you catastrophize is your inner critic. And the line that really stuck out to me was, the critic's job is to do to me in private what it doesn't want done to me in public. That's good. I know. That's a great line. It's so good. So, you know, you being a being a therapy person, I wonder if you've ever heard something like this before. Does that ring true to you as something that you've already kind of covered in your work? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, catastrophizing is... Like, that's my game. <laughs> like, that's what I do. So, I mean, yeah, we've definitely had that conversation in therapeutic sessions over the years. Uh, and I mean, that's kind of always been my feeling, too. It's never been as eloquent as that, but that's totally part of it, at least on a subconscious level sometimes. It's like you can almost beat it to the punch, and there's some element of that that's better than... It's like if it's going to suck, at least you're kind of controlling the suck. But it is weird because it's a trap, too. I mean, it, like you can live out stuff that you were never going to live out otherwise. And a perfect example of that is what I was talking about however many episodes ago when I was saying that, like, I, I'll convince myself that friendships are over. I'll convince myself that people want nothing to do with me. 
you know, I'll catastrophize in that way and then have to do a lot of self-talk to get over it. In this episode, he was talking to Hillary McBride, who is a trauma therapist, and she brought up an interesting point. I'm paraphrasing this, but what I wrote down was, are we afraid that without this imagined stress, we won't show up in our own lives? In other words, we give ourselves something to take care of. We, we give ourselves ourself to take care of. Yeah. So that there is taking care of. And does are we worried that no one else is going to stand up for us? Are we worried that no one else is going to voice their defense of our feelings? And so do we create an imaginary scenario where we have to defend ourselves because we're afraid that no one else will? Yeah, I mean, I could see that. And I think it's also sometimes, at least for me, it's a fear that that muscle will get weak, you know, and it won't be there when you need it. Like that worst case scenario part of you. Yeah. It's it's tricky because it's like the only real solution that anybody's ever told me or that I've ever really kind of reasoned my way to around catastrophizing in general is just that you have to kind of be at peace with like the whole kind of control you can control. It's almost like the serenity prayer kind of stuff, you know? Mm. And that is a weird leap of faith sometimes. And it's a weird resignation sometimes. It's very counterintuitive when you're in a hyperanxious state. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I have never thought of it in those terms before. But I do think that there is a little bit of, you know, obviously it's different when we're in something like a pandemic. Mm-hmm. I guess it's not that different because right now what I worry the most about is are my fears being seen? Yep. Are my fears being shared by other people who know to take the same precautions? Yeah. You know, you wear a mask and you you use hand sanitizer. I'm not afraid of you. Yeah. But I very much am if you don't see what everyone's needs are right now, including my own. And so... I'm bringing up the pandemic as something that we can all relate to catastrophizing about. Yeah. So, you know, there's that, and then there are social situations. I guess that's included under the umbrella of social situations right now, where you catastrophize what could possibly go wrong and what of your needs won't be met in a given situation. And then you create an instance or a conflict in which you need to stand up for yourself in which you need to look out for your own interests. And I really, really resonate with that being because you don't believe any others, anyone else will see what your interests are and what your needs are. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. And it's tough because a lot of the elements I think that comprise catastrophizing are truthful. You know, they're, they're valuable even in and of themselves, but the perspective is crucial. Like you have to remain in the driver's seat of each aspect of it and kind of like keep all those plates spinning in the right ways. I mean, at the end of the day, that feeling, that fear that you're not going to be heard or that no one's going to come to bat for you, it results in either you kind of falling apart or it results in self-reliance. And that is kind of a logical end to like coming up with a worst case scenario. Like if you're in a worst case scenario, you know, and you realize nobody's coming to bat for you and you end up being self-reliant in any capacity, that's the best thing that can happen there. So it's almost like I've kind of learned to treat these things as, as war games in a way is like, 
if I'm already going down this path, then like, all right, what can I get from this and how can I get the hell off of this as quickly as possible? But like, you know, kind of using it to say, okay, well, like we're working out this hypothetical right now. What would I do? And it puts you back in the driver's seat and kind of reinforces the positive aspects of the stuff that you can't like, you know, you can't forget about it when you're catastrophizing something. You can't turn it off. You can't just go to bed and leave it alone or whatever. So it's like, it makes some of that inescapable side of it actually work for you as opposed to just being this specter that you keep trying to swat away. And it's just, I think, see, it's like seeing the silver linings in it really, which is stupid as it sounds. I mean, seeing kind of that, like, all right, it's a tool. Because I've been in positions where it has absolutely played out the way the catastrophe went and also <laughs> positions where um, being able to plan for all those contingencies was great because I took a piece of this catastrophe, a piece of this catastrophe, you know, just kind of compiled it into a plan. Mm -hmm. And other times it's completely useless, but it's it's like kind of a discipline and kind of a, I feel like just almost that Zen moment about it. Like with so many things, like if you're having a panic attack, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago of just that breath you get to take where you're like, all right, what's happening to me right now? Is this chemicals rising or I need to go take a walk? For me, it's the quicker you can get to that point the more useful the catastrophe will be. Mm. Yeah, and, and going back to that kind of self-therapy, giving things names. Yeah. Um, and if we take this back to internal family systems, there is an archetype in internal family systems that is the critic. Uh -huh. And I assume that what they're talking about is similar to this, at least in some way. And so if you name this thing and make it its own entity... And you can say to it, and this is the advice of, that Hillary McBride kind of gives, is if you can actually acknowledge that thing and name it and thank it. And I'd like to give the example because we're both musicians and, you know, if we write or we perform or we release any content, it's, you know, there's an anxiety to that. There's a, we want to be heard, we want to be seen, we want to be appreciated for the work that we've done. And we want this thing to have artistic value in our yeah. little world. And if our inner critic comes in, and let's take catastrophe out of it, although maybe everyone's going to hate it, is a form of catastrophizing. Yeah. But it's not, you know, impending doom or anything. But it is, I'm going to have something negative to deal with, to weather. If we can then turn to our inner critic and say, listen, man, I want to thank you for noticing that what I want is for people to like it. And like, I know that what you're saying is the opposite right now, but you're saying that because you're a little demon <laughs> and <laughs> and and acknowledging that people hating this thing is the opposite of what I want means you know what I want. So I just want to thank you for oh, that's cool, though. <laughs> seeing what I want, even though, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that was kind of the advice was, can we look at the critic as something that really does see us in that moment and say, thanks for looking out for me but don't talk to me like that. I don't know if it's more prevalent, but it seems like it's a specific kind of vivid with creative types, like any kind of a creative type. Anything, where, any lifestyle where you're 
just coming up with scenarios all the time. <laughs> like that's either your job or that's your interest or whatever. Like that's just what you do with your brain. Of course, it's going to occasionally come out in a very terrible way too. So that self-talk is crucial for governing it because that's always been something I've been perplexed by with anxiety in general throughout the years is that like if I have this much of something, how can it not be useful in some way? You know, it's a pain in the ass 99% of the time, but there have been times where this degree of anxiety has been life-saving for me. And same. And so I always think about it. I remember having that discussion when um, a therapist was like, you should just take Prozac and just chill the fuck out. And I was like, I just didn't agree. I've tried it before. It didn't really stick with me, but like that was always the thing I came back to. Cause it was like, that one catastrophe out of a hundred where I actually needed to be kind of like thinking in that way and being able to think logically under those circumstances. It was, these are dress rehearsals, you know? And after a while, like I found a good therapist that was kind of teaching me how to treat them as dress rehearsals, you know, like kind of taking myself out of it in that way. And that feels like a very healthy way, at least for me, that's a very healthy way to approach these things because it gives it a little bit of respect, but not enough that it has control. And then it's kind of just an element, you know, it's it's like a river or something running by you. It's like this thing could swamp you, but you can also kind of fill your cup up from it now and then. Do you think it has to do, I mean, I think it must have to do with aspirations and ambitions as well, because especially, you know, people like you and me, we're always planning our next album. Yep. We're always <laughs> planning a, a trajectory of some kind. And so when then we have something that kind of sneaks into that thought process and plants doubt. And I guess where I would go from there is maybe this is an obvious conclusion and maybe it is a it's a huge leap, but just from my perspective, I do a lot of reading about faith and doubt uh, in a spiritual context. And something that I heard recently was that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Oh, shit. That's good. Right. And that doubt and faith are actually companions of one another. Yeah. That's, you know, I like that. When the doubt is strong, the faith is even better when you feel it. When the faith is strong, the doubt doesn't hurt as much. There are all these relations between doubt and faith where they need one another. Yeah. So I would say that like that inner critic comes in to impose doubt on you and that actually makes your perseverance that much more meaningful to you it's kind of the same as like just recognizing that whatever pers whatever you're in pursuit of whether that just be survival or whether it be some ambition that you want to realize and manifest you know if you look at that as a as a system of faith and you say i'm going to persevere no matter what and then the critic and the catastrophizer comes into your head and makes you doubt. See it as doubt, because anybody who has faith also is going to have doubt, or at least I don't think it's unhealthy to have doubt if you live a faith-based life. So the doubt should be accepted, because as soon as you reject it, that's when certainty comes in, and certainty is like almost the companion of cynicism, you know? Yeah. In a way. Well, certainty is just, in a theoretical way, it's just kind of throwing your hands up, you know, because it's the one thing we really don't have any command over. 
and if we, you know, when it actually becomes apparent, it doesn't matter anymore. Because if you think about it, is anxiety and catastrophizing and stuff, are, are those any less rational than hope? Yeah, no, I don't think so. So I think it's, to me, it's just putting the same stake in that we put into hope as this pushing force that's going to get us through hard times. It's putting that same degree of trust in feelings that bring us nothing but fucking pain. That's asking for trouble in a lot of ways, but it's such an automatic thing that you have to like catch it. You have to get yourself kind of trained and thinking that way where you see that starting to happen. And you remember like, you got to grab those reins back real quick because you can let hope take you on a freaking sleigh ride for a while, just taking you all over the place. And worst that's ever going to happen is it's going to feel good and you're not going to get where you thought you were going and you justify it and move on. But if it's anxiety, it's nails on the chalkboard the whole time. Right. And I think that's a very good analogy to make is, you know, faith is to hope as doubt is to anxiety. Mm. And I, I appreciate you kind of taking that out of the spiritual realm for me. Because <laughs> that's... <laughs> I feel like that can sometimes get in the way of my communication with people, but um, no, it's a cool perspective on it, though. Well, thank you. I mean, it's just it's what I'm kind of the most well read in right now at this moment in my life. Um, but I don't want that to inhibit my ability to <laughs> to communicate in broad strokes. You know? Yeah, I was just kind of having that debate with my brother the other night. It wasn't really a debate. We were on the same side. So I guess that's just, is that just a conversation that's loud? Yeah. <laughs> so is that. But um, we were kind of talking about sort of how devout, zealous atheism is in a lot of ways just as harmful when it goes to that place as devout, zealous religion can be. And we were trying to figure out why and if one is actually better than the other, you know, if you have to have an extreme and I kind of ended up at this point where it's like you you need all of these forces in terms of like the human condition and stuff. You need a sort of a leapfrogging effect with all of these things. You know, like there's a place for rationality and for science and there's a place where we just have to suspend our disbelief to get through the day and you need something else for that. But it's kind of like trusting that like <clears throat> we're going to keep asking the questions and not having all the answers and then eventually arriving at answers. And, you know, it's like we don't have to, not everything has to add up by the same logic we had like 10 years ago or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. It's like just kind of recognizing that each thing has its place. Like there's going to be uncertainty around like what happens after we die. I almost don't feel like that science is place to pretend to know what the fuck is going on with that because there is no evidence. So you need something else. You need something to kind of make it work out for you. And then there's the idea that the sun is not pulled across the sky by a chariot. We've kind of got that down at this point. So that doesn't need to stay in the religious realm necessarily. You know, it's like these things, I think just they can dovetail into one another and stuff. And I feel like it's the same way inside our own brains. It's like you can find aspects of anxiety, aspects of depression, these things that become pathologized or become these useless burdens that we carry around, you can part those things out and use them. They're there, you know, like, why not? Well, let me ask you this. If the sun is not pulled across the sky by a chariot, where do you think falling stars come from? Oh, shit. <laughs> if that mic wasn't on a stand, you would have dropped it right then. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I don't know, though. <laughs> if Phaethon had never gone to Helios and asked if he could drive a chariot across the sky and had not fallen from the sky into the sea, almost burning up the entire earth, were it not for <laughs> Zeus's <laughs> intervention, then we wouldn't have meteors to remind us of Phaethon's downfall. <laughs> That's a good point. I take all that back. <laughs> That was a damn good comeback, dude. <laughs> I honestly don't know what the fuck to say. <laughs> We've kind of just gone over a palliative measure for the critic and a preventative measure for anxiety. And we've talked before about palliative measures for anxiety, but what is a preventative measure for the critic? How do you stop the critic from showing up in the same way that you would stop anxiety from showing up? I don't know. I mean, it seems like it just has to get boring. You know, it has to get diffused in some way because there's kind of no way to block something like that. It's the same as trying to block anxiety. It just changes shape and hits you where you're not quite expecting it. It is weird because, like, catastrophizing isn't quite the same as anxiety. Like, anxiety isn't a need to have your fears or doubts known, whereas catastrophizing very much is, like, a need to have a fear acknowledged. But anxiety is more than just the acknowledgement of it. It's the terror. Um, it's like an irrational response. I, I think you can actually call catastrophizing a rational response. Yeah, I would see that. Because you are using reason. Yeah. Maybe that's part of dealing with it is keeping reason in the front seat of it. Like if something starts to fail your logic, then recognizing where that split happens and that it might be becoming something else. Because you know how like sometimes you can be running away with a thought like that. And I mean, it might suck, but it's also a very real possibility that something could suck. But then you like kind of go off down some little side path with it for a while where you've left logic in the dust like that. You've just let the anxiety snowball and you've let it kind of build on itself as opposed to building on the initial situation and being able to catch that and recognize that that has just happened seems helpful. Yeah. And I think almost what you're saying is managing expectations. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of the catastrophizing that I have done has been in response to expectations that have been grandiose or that have been beyond my reach. Mm -hmm. And so the catastrophizing is kind of a rational response to those expectations being unrealistic. Yeah, okay. That's what I mean by, by it's a rational response sometimes. Certainly not all the time. If there are any... <laughs> Like licensed clinicians out there listening to this, I'm sorry. I know you're screaming at me in disagreement. <laughs> but I think this is an interesting angle. Yeah, to, I like it. <laughs> to inspect this from. Um, yeah, so if your expectations have been managed properly and you're still catastrophizing, then that is probably a little bit more akin to anxiety. Mm. I'm making this up as I go along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like it though It is a cool angle to look at it from I haven't really thought about it yeah. that way before this That's not to say don't dream big 
But that's really all catastrophizing is. You're just dreaming really big. Yeah. It's just a nightmare. <laughs> you know, a nightmare is a dream too. <laughs> I would love to give a more realistic presentation of this. Like how would catastrophizing as a rational response fit into another area? Well, okay, let's let's use another example from this video that I was watching of Science Mike. And this is really what I empathized with the most. What came up was if you're worried that you're going to end up alone, then you make yourself alone, which is what I do all the time. You know, if I'm worried that I'll lose a friendship, then my critic will end that friendship for me. Like there are people that doesn't happen with is the thing. Like I've never thought that you hate me. Mm. I think my girlfriend hates me all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But it's weird. Like I was saying, like during the pandemic, that's happened less and less Mm -hmm. because it's not an expectation that I will be spending time with people or that they will be reaching out to me. Mm. And if anybody has been distant lately, well, they're dealing with quarantine in their own way. Yeah. You know? Well, do you think that's just like a a wicked magnified version of what you're kind of like taught to believe when the world is online in the regular way? Do you think this is just a huge like screaming it from the rooftops example of the type of thinking that therapists advocate for? Because that's half the time what they tell you anyway when you say, oh, everybody hates me they say because they haven't responded to my messages and stuff. They say, well, they might be dealing with something. They might be asleep. They might, you know, it's like you can't really know what they're dealing with. And now it's just so clear that we can't really know what somebody is dealing with. And we're getting that information reinforced from pretty much any direction at this point. That is this just what it takes to like kind of get it in there? Because I've felt the same thing. I'm not entirely sure why, but there's so much of this that feels like, wow, I wish I could have learned this lesson without hundreds of thousands of people having to die. Well, I don't, I don't know. Mm, okay, I'll try to free associate a little bit. Um, I don't know if this would have to do anything to do with like the vagus nerve or. Um, your brain slash body's sense memory of what pain feels like. Your vagus nerve is kind of what remembers trauma and how it manifested the first time around. And so it will recognize things that can be triggering or things that seem like a threat and cause a physical response to the threat. I don't know that it would have anything to do with that, but there is sort of maybe a sense memory attached to it. And so the way that it would be a rational response is that if I haven't heard from a friend in a few weeks, that feels the same as it felt when another friend was done with me. You know what I mean? So like it feels the same as a breakup, you know? So anybody who has had that experience who had that imprint left on them somewhat dramatically or like in an unresolved emotional way, then the next time you feel what you have registered in the past as a breakup, it's going to feel like that. So it is a rational response to the condition. But again, I find myself using (laughs) that as an example, and I'd like to take it out of that realm. But I, I don't know. I think it can be argued that the critic 
is not an irrational entity. It reminds you that you've felt a way before and that you can feel that way again. And that's not always irrational. If anything, the the jumping off point can be rational or irrational. Like, I think that's where it fluctuates because the critic, if anything, is only rational. It's just, it's the voice of logic. It's just that starting point can change. And it that's almost the point where the uncertainty starts to come into play is that starting point and that destination are sometimes a little bit hazy. And it's really hard to know if that logic is useful or even just remotely founded if you don't entirely know like what you're working with and where you're going and where you're coming from like if there's any amount of faith involved with that that logic is the only kind of sound thing you've got Here's where these two kind of marry together as well, Yeah, is agoraphobia. Yeah. A lot of people think that it's the fear of being outside, out in the world. It's not. It's the fear of having a panic attack while you're out in the world. Mm. So if you have done that before, I've had plenty of panic attacks in public spaces. Mm. Luckily, I'm not an agoraphobic person. I don't fear that happening to me. Mm -hmm. But that's catastrophizing. Yeah. In that it's not necessarily an anxiety. It's not necessarily a panic attack thinking about having panic attacks in public spaces. But it's catastrophizing when you're going, oh, I don't want that to happen again. And it's a rational response to thinking about that happening again. Yeah. So in order to overcome that, you can say, okay, here's my palliative measure for the critic. And say, like, well, the critic is taking care of me. The critic doesn't want that to happen to me again. And I have to thank the critic mm -hmm. for looking out for me and for seeing that I am afraid of that. Mm -hmm. Thank you, critic, for seeing me. But then the marriage of that to the preventative measure of anxiety, well, okay, once I've taken care of the critic, once I am on good terms with the critic and I've stopped catastrophizing, then I have to find the strength to take those preventative measures so that I don't have a panic attack when I'm out in public. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Yeah, so I, I think a lot of people, like I remember having to help my mom out with this um, because she was agoraphobic for many years. She doesn't like driving um, on roads that have no breakdown lane. Mm -hmm. But usually when that's the case, it's a very short stretch of road. And so I'd be driving with her and say like, okay, I want to see if you can if you can perceive this as not the whole road. The whole road is not like this. There's a place to, to pull over and break down if you need to break down, mm -hmm. like 200 feet that way. And this is not what the whole road is. But can you get over this catastrophizing? Because what you're thinking right now is that there's no place to break down, mm -hmm. is that there's no place to pull off if you need to pull off. But that's not true. That's objectively not true. Yeah. And so can you get over that potential catastrophe knowing that it's not real and get past this stretch of road and then you can pull right off and you'll be fine. So I think a lot of the time it's just it's practice, but it's also a rational response to things that haven't been there for you in the past or yeah. to things that have been overwhelming to you in the past. No, that's totally true. I found too it took me a very long time, but I realized a couple of years ago, around um, 
I have like a crippling fear of flying. I realized that uh, it, it, I didn't have any respect for like that paradigm shift that's going to happen. Like I was, I guess the specific thing I was afraid of weirdly was not crashing. It was freaking out while crashing. It was that my fucking social anxiety would be such that I would be self-conscious while my airplane was crashing. Right. Which for some reason took me years to realize how ludicrous that thought is. But um, it was like, it, one day it just kind of occurred to me that everybody is going to be freaking the hell out when an airplane is crashing. And the whole paradigm that I'm operating under right now that all of my logic and all of my images of this catastrophe are all based upon will cease to exist the instant that that reality becomes a reality because everybody's going to lose their shit and all rationality is going to go out the fucking window. So like that kind of made a lot of it click for me too, that like it's accepting that if like, you know, for example, if you're on a road where there's no breakdown lane and your car like seizes, you'll get off the road somehow because you're going to have like a millisecond to make that decision and make that action happen. And something's going to take over that isn't your fear brain. It's going to be a muscle jerk or something, and you're going to be on the shoulder all of a sudden. And people are going to forgive you for it because they're going to see the flames and they'll be fine. And it's like, you know, it's kind of, it's, I found it was a very effective way to combat, like almost using the actual horror of whatever situation against the fear of that situation, you know, like realizing how powerful that was going to be because I'm afraid of how powerful it's going to be. That's also going to shift the setting enough that I won't even give a shit, you know? Well, what's interesting is that like in my very limited understanding of neuroscience, I think that that would be the fear brain taking over. Oh yeah, I guess so. I mean, in the event of emergency, I think a lot of what you're automatically doing is based in the amygdala. Mm -hmm. The amygdala is also what gives you panic attacks. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> like what I've read is that in that case, there's not a whole lot going on in your prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. your thinking brain. It is a lot of automatic response to emergency. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of not necessarily panicking, but a lot of, um, trained, you know, instinctual response. So maybe that's, maybe both are, are happy. Your amygdala is probably a part of both for sure. Yeah. Um, and there's probably other stuff at work that, that I'm not privy to, but no, it's funny. It's like the same parts of our brain that protect us can also <laughs> really damn us sometimes. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I've always felt at least personally, I've always kind of felt that it's not the right move to shut it down unless you really have to, like to suppress those things, unless you're you're truly in a position where that is the move, which is, you know, a different situation entirely. It's like if it's crippling to where you can't get out of bed and stuff, well, that's its own thing. But like in my case, you know, having panic attacks all the time and everything, but realizing that like it, it's useful enough that I feel like this is just something I got to learn how to use so it doesn't quite use me. And um, it, it's the same exact, I can feel it, like the same physical feeling that is like haunting me every second of every day is the thing that I'm like, oh, thank God, when I'm in some kind of a crisis situation and I have to 
flip that switch, which, you know, you hope doesn't happen that much, but there have been a lot of situations where I have not choked under pressure, where if you asked me to game that situation out right now, I would say, oh, I'd shut right down. Like, And then it's happened and, you know, I don't freak out at, at the time. I freak the hell out after and ruminate and, you know, the anxiety takes the wheel again, but it's weird. It's just that automatic part of you is so hard to, so hard to trust. But it is most of you. Yep. <laughs> is the strange thing. The biggest part of our brain is the survival part of our brain. Mm. You know, every other part of us is way newer and comprises a way smaller piece of real estate in our mm. brains. So it's just, you know, it any anxiety or nervousness or fear that you have comes from the predominant part of your brain. Yeah. Uh, which is wild. Yeah. And it, I mean, it makes sense in an evolutionary way because if you're on the savanna or something, that's the part of your brain you're going to want to be freaking huge. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, it's almost like the setting is the problem in a lot of ways. But this is the setting that we have. What else do you think we haven't covered about the critic and catastrophe? Maybe the chicken and egg aspect of it, like is catastrophizing or even the critic really, is any of that there to give shape and to give a face to just some chemical thing that's buzzing all the time? Like, do we just have this feeling or this like need and we've just decided to personify it? That's an interesting thing. Theory, Like basically, if you feel anxious all the time biochemically, will you invent scenarios to make that make sense so you don't just spiral off untethered? I like that. I don't know what we, I don't know that we actually consciously or unconsciously personify the anxiety as the critic. You may be right, but the way that I've been looking at this is it is our task to personify the critic as the critic. Whereas I think that the catastrophic thoughts that we have are sort of ethereal and nameless at first. And sort of the work to do is to name and label that thing as the critic. So it's our job to define it, and that's how we do the work. That's my interpretation of this, uh, of this realm anyway. No, I mean, that makes sense to me. Like, I guess I mean more the catastrophizing side of it than like, have you ever had those days where you just kind of wake up or whatever and you just, there's definitely times where you can be anxious about something and you mull it over for a while and you think what is at the root of all of this and you get there eventually. But have you ever had those days where you're just like, it almost seems like you just picked something, like you were just going to be anxious that day. So you just kind of plugged something in. Because I have, like, when I wake up, man, if I'm not having some kind of a panic attack, I'm, I become aware that I'm not having a panic attack. And then I think of something to have a panic attack about to make that part of the day make sense, you know? But it's always the catastrophizing that gives that shape. 
because I can't just conjure those feelings without a plot. That has happened to me before. It doesn't tend to happen now. And I guess that makes me hopeful. That's me too. Are you saying you're hopeful for getting old? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's one plus in the getting older column. It's about fucking time. Um, But a lot of that is honestly having aged and having felt the effects of aging on my body. And then it becomes a lot more imperative to take the steps of precaution. And that's it. You know, like the, when, you're, when your body gets a little bit older, it doesn't take much for it to feel off kilter. So that's kind of what I've learned. It's like the reason that I'm less anxious now is because I felt tremendously anxious when I was finishing school and I was 30 years old and I realized that I couldn't do all-nighters anymore. And I was basically insane for two weeks. Um, And then got really, really anxious and paranoid and like legit thought I was going to die. And uh, then I sort of came out of that and was like, oh, I got to really take care of myself. (laughs) So... I think, I mean, I know some people, they get worse in their 30s. They get worse the older that they get. Or some people just start to feel anxiety when they are older. But for me, having felt it for so much of my life, I I would like to think that I got an early start. And then once I was in a place where I could identify things that were making it worse, I took preventative measures to stop those things from affecting me. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Because it's very logical, it's, you know, it's just, there are things that are just hurting you throughout the day. And yeah, but that's, you know. A lot of them know, can be solved. Having said that, I don't think that I've ever learned a preventative measure to stop the critic from showing up. Yeah. Um, except for maybe, like, see, that's why I'm saying, like, preventative versus versus palliative. Because yeah. the palliative measure when the critic shows up is either self-talk or you know that say it's another type of catastrophizing that isn't so like self-involved, I suppose, for lack of a better word, you can trust that you have the resources to cope with a catastrophe, you know, whether you have like, you know, money or food, any form of sustenance or whether you have, the mental faculties to respond to whatever is impending. Yeah. But that's a palliative measure or that's a responsive measure that takes care Mm. of the fear, but how to stop the critic from showing up like that. That's what we really haven't solved yet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because we've determined that sometimes it shows up for very rational reasons. Yeah. And we've determined that those reasons are beyond our control. Well, how about, is it is it a matter of stopping him from showing up uninvited and unexpectedly, or is it a matter of, like, be, basically, is it being able to conjure him when you need him? Ah. Or getting rid of him entirely? Oh, I like this little demon. <laughs> well, that invites the question, though, when do we need the critic? Yeah. I think that's an important thing to cover that we haven't really discussed yet. 
do we need him? And I think that we need him the most when we're unconscious of him. So if we're saying that the critic is the catastrophizer, the, that catastrophizer is going to warn us against trouble that might be around the corner. And say you're already anxious. The catastrophizer warns you not to drive down a dark back road. Yeah. And it wants you instead to take a more well-lighted route. Mm-hmm. Right? That's fine. It's really okay to take the safer route. Yeah. However, some part of you subconsciously knows that there is more danger where there is no light. Yeah. So he is trying to prevent you from feeling the presence of more danger than you're already feeling if you're already in an anxious state. Yeah. Okay. My life was once saved by my catastrophizer Mm. because I was in a really anxious place and it told me not to get on the highway. Mm. And so I drove, you know, 30, 35 miles an hour back and forth to school and like the next day my brake line snapped because Jesus. my frame had cracked in my car. Holy hell. Which would have been accelerated had I gone on the highway. Yeah. Because there would have been more agitation to the frame. So so my life was literally saved by the critic. Yeah. I catastrophized and then I didn't fucking die on the highway. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. But so it shows up when you need it for sure, because it tells you like, you're already afraid of danger right now. Don't go where there's more danger. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of a weird example because like (laughs) I was already anxious, which means I was already fearing danger that wasn't present and that I shouldn't have been fearing. Yeah. Nonetheless, (laughs) here I am today. (laughs) So what I was about to say is that, like, the onus is on us to stop fearing uh, danger that is not present. And then the critic won't have so much control over us. (laughs) But sometimes it saves your life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe the trick is the fearing the danger. Maybe you're allowed to acknowledge it. It's kind of dumb not to. It's like just having a really like, I don't know, like a wicked trigger happy assistant who just keeps giving you letters and giving you tools and giving you information and shit. And like, you can't stop that asshole from coming into your office all the time, but you can choose the tone with which you read the stuff or you can choose when you read it or whether you read it, whatever. Like, maybe it's not a matter of trying to govern the the stimuli around you as much as it is preventing it before it gets to that next, you know, where it starts to screw with your head or it starts to change what you're doing. You know, that quote, we may have actually said it once on this thing, but um, like power or something, I think it's power exists in that moment between stimulation and reaction. It's like kind of that, like maybe that's more of the key of it because it accounts for a little bit of that uncertainty of like shit's still going to happen. Sometimes you're going to need it. Sometimes you're not. But also, you're not, like, born of that moment. You know, there's something in between where you get to kind of choose how you're going to position yourself. And it's a matter of, like, learning how to expand that space and inhabit it better as you go along. Because it feels tricky no matter which way you cut it. The idea of getting rid of that critic entirely feels wrong because at some point, like, that tiger's going to get you. Or 
keeping him in control all the time feels insane because there's not tigers around every corner. Okay, Richard Schwartz says, To understand the critic, we first need to talk about how parts organize themselves. They fall into two main categories, exiles and protectors. We talked about this in the self-therapy episode. Exiles are the parts of us who were hurt. They carry the burdens of worthlessness, terror, shame, fear, etc., and we hide them away. Protectors help us by preventing an exiled part from getting re-triggered, so we don't have to feel all that emotion again. Protectors organize them into two categories, managers and firefighters. <laughs> managers are all about trying to control everything. Firefighters will step in to do something dramatic if an exile is triggered, no matter what the damage. Everyone has an inner critic. Most people have several. They typically fall into the category of managers. They're desperately trying to get you to behave, to lose weight, not to yell at your partner, not to take risks, etc. So they attack you, thinking that will work. They are like internalized children who are in over their heads and don't know how else to run the whole family other than by yelling and criticizing. We then need to honor them for that service and negotiate with them for the permission to go to what they protect so we can heal those exiles. Once the exiles are healed, we come back to the critic, and that part, relieved of its burden, now has the opportunity to revert to its naturally valuable state. Often we find the critic becomes the person's biggest cheerleader or motivator. And while I do like the demon better, uh, <laughs> Dr. Schwartz says that the critic is a rowdy child. <laughs> But it, it nags at you. It tests you, I think. Yeah. So that's a valuable piece of information. It, it is just trying to protect you. But often it tries to protect you by testing your knowledge of what is real and what isn't. Yeah, I mean, that's... I think that's the core of it. It's like it, it is testing you. Like, you are still the one taking the test. But then it comes back to, like, can you prevent that? Like, can you prevent that test from being administered in the first place? Or should you? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that you should. But according to Dr. Schwartz, the way to do that is to address the needs of your exiles. Yeah. So your exiles are the things that are afraid of being hurt. Your protectors are the things that are trying to keep them from being hurt. And so your exiles are basically trauma. Yeah. And your protectors are the guardians and like your protectors are the defense mechanisms that keep you from exacerbating that trauma. So I think the way to hush the critic is to address the needs of the exiles. Because if you don't need to worry about trauma being uncovered and exposed and if you don't need to worry about that kind of... I almost think of the exiles as the little children. <laughs> I disagree with you, Richard. But <laughs> I like the demons and the firemen. Yeah. I like the idea of a bunch of demons and firefighters running around trying to solve my problems. Working together. Yeah. <laughs> 
I want that to be a cartoon. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I mean, the conclusion, I guess, is that the critic is not a bad thing and catastrophizing is not a bad thing. And it absolutely is a rational response to impulses that we feel or stimuli that we perceive that we can associate with past traumas or that we can associate with triggers. No, I mean, I like that perspective, like the kindness to it. Yeah. The takeaway here, I, I guess, is to, th- to thank your critic, mm. to thank your demon. <laughs> <laughs> to thank your fireman. <laughs> they're he doing really good did, work for you he said fireman right like i'm not yeah okay, yeah he did God. firefighters yeah firefighters yeah yeah i was gonna say if i've just been running with that dude and that wasn't actually a thing that happened <laughs> <laughs> thank your demons thank your firefighters and thank uh the children <laughs> that's the conclusion we've reached yeah and and <laughs> open some windows and let some light in and uh, give your children some air. <laughs> Man, we should someday like write down the question we asked in the beginning of these things and then the one sentence answer that we got to at the end. Because that was the sentence and I can't think of how the fuck that would correspond to the question we asked. <laughs> but I like that we got there. Well, I mean, we we didn't we really didn't deviate that much. No, that's the scary thing. But <laughs> that's what I mean, it's not like we just strayed off the topic. We got somewhere. <laughs> it's just like wow, that's crazy that we ended up there. And that's our show. We'll be back next week with Michael Gunger, who is an incredible musician and the host of the Liturgist podcast. And we'll be talking about feelings of unworthiness, which was the inspiration for his new single. Black Market Therapy is a Dead and Mellow production, and to stay up to date with our upcoming episodes, you can follow Black Market Therapy and Dead and Mellow Records on social media. You can also direct any feedback to blackmarkettherapypodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you soon.